This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives. Hey, Philip Stokes here, host of Science by the Slice and Education Coordinator at the Pi Center. We're back with part two of our series on food systems during the COVID-19 pandemic. And in this episode, you'll hear from two economists who are measuring the impact of the pandemic across the food supply chain and how those impacts may vary geographically in the U.S. And leading this conversation is Michaela Kanzer, graduate assistant with the Pi Center, who you should already know by now because you listened to part one of this series. Seriously, if you haven't listened to part one, you should do that. Anyway, I thought Michaela should introduce this episode, so here's our conversation where she does just that. The ag industry and the food system really took a hit during COVID-19, and so we kind of talked about some of those changes to demand in the last episode, and we talked a little bit about, you know, a personal story of how producers had to change what they were doing in order to adapt to the pandemic. And so today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the supply and demand side of COVID-19 and the food system and learn a little bit more about those impacts and how they really affected the food system during COVID-19. So you mentioned that COVID-19 impacted supply and demand, the producers, the consumers. What what played out during the pandemic? Yeah, of course. So typically when researchers are looking at the impacts that disasters have on the food system, they're looking at things like hurricanes. But researchers really had to shift their focus from looking at these traditional disasters to looking at the pandemic. So we were able to see that COVID-19 caused a major shock to supply and to demand, which is part of what makes the COVID-19 pandemic so unique. Our food system had not previously been affected by supply and demand at the same time, and not to this magnitude. And so both sides of the food system faced extreme challenges. For example, the supply chain experienced challenges such as companies having to shift their focus due to those changes in supply and demand. They had to create changes in their packaging. They had to um, experience changes in how products were getting from the producer to the processor to the consumer, or as we heard in our last episodes, directly from producers to consumers. But as we know, the ag industry is overwhelmingly resilient, and the industry was largely able to overcome most of these challenges due to their flexibility and their ability to adapt. As most consumers, you know, we don't see all of those things. We don't know what goes on always before the food reaches the shelves or the restaurants or wherever it's going. So I think that's a really cool thing to discuss today. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your conversation with our two researchers. So can you tell us who you talked to and a little bit more about them? Yeah, of course. So I was able to talk to Dr. Hikaru Peterson. She's from the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, and she studies mainly demand and supply and food-related choices. While we also talked to Dr. Krista Court, who is from the Department of Food and Resource Economics at the University of Florida. She has an expertise in regional economic modeling and disaster impact analyses for agriculture, natural resources, and the ag industry. So if you keep listening, you can hear from Dr. Court and Dr. Peterson as they talk about their research that they have been conducting on the effects of COVID-19 in the food system.
now, Dr. Hikaru Peterson. So Dr. Coit and I are on an 11PI team. Uh, we're located in three regions of the nation. So one region, study region is in uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, in upper Midwest. Krista is representing the Florida region. And then we also have a, a team in UC Irvine that is looking at the uh, Southern California region. And one of the things we're doing right now is that we have um, the supply chain survey that we're conducting. It's the same survey instrument, but hosted by these three study regions. And we're really hoping to look at the impact of the pandemic across the supply chain and whether there are uh, differences in the study regions that really are very different in, in the food systems that we all have. Um, we're also planning a consumer survey that will be launch, launching in uh, late April. This is national in scope. And then we also have um, analytical work uh, that is ongoing that's looking at the capacities and structures of regional food systems because one of our focus of our study is that these regional food systems, which are uh, shorter, both geographically, but also in terms of the number of transactions between the producers in the consumer and how those shorter uh, supply chains can augment the mainstream supply chains so that we are better prepared for future disruptions. And this is Dr. Krista Court. Carl covered it quite well, but the focus on the regional supply chains is is very much uh, you know how they can augment the system in the future, like she mentioned. So it's not looking at should we move all to regional food supply chains or local food supply chains as opposed to the traditional um, makeup of the supply chain, but just how did these regional food supply chains function to um, augment some of the impact that we were seeing initially to those traditional supply chains? And should we be focused on boosting those up in the future or making sure that they are there in case something like this were to happen again? And then how do we use the, the data and the insights that we're providing in this project to make that happen? Can you help me personally and also help out our listeners in kind of understanding um, and explaining what that really looks like as far as like from the whole supply chain from beginning to finish? Can you give us some examples and kind of explain what those interruptions look like and what they look like in normal times? So I, I guess I can start that. So typically, you know, there was a lot of interest in where our food comes from at the beginning of the pandemic when people were seeing empty um, shelves on at the grocery stores while at the same time watching on the news, you know, crops being disked up in South Florida, where we have, you know, a, there was a, a huge supply of vegetables and fresh fruits that weren't being picked or were being plowed over or were just rotting in the field. And and it comes back to um, what Hikaru was talking about before, where we were not prepared to move from a situation where multiple semi-truck loads of a particular product are leaving a farm or leaving a region every day, needing to split that up and get it to, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of consumers that were in need of food. You know, I can't take a semi-truck around and deliver to each one of those um, households that were in need. And, you know, to leave them in the field knowing that there was not the traditional market in place would have almost cost more than trying to redo that system that gets it to the consumer. Um, so that's why we were seeing a lot of that mismatch initially. Typically, the producer, between the producer and the consumer, there's several places um, or several different operations. So there's operations that are involved in packaging food or involved in processing from a raw product to something like 
from tomatoes to spaghetti sauce or to salsa. Uh, so there's there's processing involved, and then there's typically multiple sites for distribution. You know, product might go from the processor to a warehouse to another warehouse, and then finally get to the grocery store or be delivered straight to your home. So I think when there were interruptions in each of those links upon that supply chain, then things just bottled up, you know, and, and got to the very end where we, we could not get the food from the field to the consumer in the form that they were expecting in a short amount of time that they are used to. So these regional or local um, supply chains that we're talking about are they have fewer links um, in what I just described. And that might mean that it goes directly from the producer to the consumer, or that might mean that there are fewer stops um, in that distribution chain and just you know fewer miles from the farm to the final consumer. And the question is, where is the balance between that traditional supply chain and these regional supply chains so that we don't face the type of interruptions that lasted for weeks or even months in terms of getting a particular product that the consumer wanted to them? I'll just add the example of livestock uh, sector. Uh, in Minnesota, there was a huge pork plant that uh, had to shut down because there was a um, outbreak of COVID-19 among the, the employees. And, and so, you know, it, even though the plant is located in Minnesota, it actually um, aggregates a lot of animals uh, from, you know, neighboring states and, and neighboring regions to be processed in a large volume that gets, you know, distributed again across, you know, wider part of the nation. And so once that, that plant was shut down, then there are a couple of things that, that really happened, like all these uh hogs that were ready to be marketed just didn't have a place to go. And that, that's where like more of a smaller scale regional processing capacities, if they if they exist, actually can really supplement, you know, the, the and, and continue to process so that the, the hogs that are that are ready to be ready to be processed can be processed in a, in a timely manner. But one of the other things we know is that those uh, regional capacities tend to be a lot smaller. There's no way that they can take over the entire you know capacity that the mainstream supply chains are handling. And so, again, like Krista was saying, that the question is like how how can how can two systems work better so that the disruptions can be um, mitigated in a way that you know we have we have this uninterrupted food supply? No, I think you both bring up a really interesting point that during the pandemic, like we were seeing this really interesting dichotomy where we were going to the grocery stores and the things we wanted were on the shelves and there were shortages at food pantries and food banks. But then at the same time, we were seeing on the news all these um, sad images and stories and videos of farmers having to disc up their fields or having to dump out their already milked milk. Um, and so I think that was just something that was really hard for the public to understand that dichotomy. So I think it's important that there are people like you that are bridging that gap and also finding ways to mitigate those issues in the future. I think the important thing for the public, though, is to understand that the food system was complex, but not necessarily complicated, right? It's it's that a lot of what, you know, we just both gave examples and Hikaru brought up the point of labor and the, the pandemic is sort of impacting everything, right? So when a meat processing plant experienced an outbreak or really any part of that system that we're discussing experienced an outbreak, all of this is taking place within you know, these other subsystems. So with, within a political subsystem that had changing policies, changing regulations, 
um, with respect to what could and could not be open, what could and could not happen within a workplace that was open, and then just individual operations deciding, you know, how were they going to operate? Some of them were allowed to be open, but decided they didn't think it was safe. So they closed down on their own accord, or um, some of them might have brought production levels down in order to keep employees spaced out. Um, and, you know, you even see something like an outbreak within management of a company makes it where the company can't go on at the same level of production that it was normally facing because none of the managers or none of the supervisors could be in place that they might be required to do so in order to operate. So I think just remembering the complexity of the system, not just the number of links in that chain that we're talking about, but remembering but that chain I don't want to, I don't like when people say that the food supply chain was broken uh, during the pandemic, but you know, we had to remove links over here and put them in and, and reroute the chain. So there were a lot of different things going on all at the same time. No, I think that's a great point. And I think it's also important to remember how different COVID-19 and this whole pandemic was from other natural disasters that have occurred in the past, because you know, we see things of like food safety outbreaks or, you know, um, like the first thing that came to mind is the swine flu. And so, you know, that specific industry was affected by that outbreak and by that issue, but not all wasn't wide spanning. It wasn't all all industries, all foods. And then also just even like natural disasters like hurricanes or like that may affect a certain area, but it's not going to be nearly as widespread. I always say this, the size and the scope of the disaster matters. And in this case, it was about about as wide of a scope as it could get and about as large of a size as it could get. So it really impacted everything. So how did you guys um, come together and decide to start working on this research together? I have a working relationship with Lori Baker at Florida and also um, Cheryl Boyer at Kansas State. And three of us have been working on um, issues that affect uh, rural areas through Center for Rural Enterprise Engagement. And when when this grant opportunity came out, that we knew we wanted to do something about the food system because of the impact. And then Krista got roped in right away, I, I think through through Lori. And, and, and also we brought in Angie Lindsay, who specializes in risk communication. And then and, and I also had um, other relationship with Michelle Miller at Wisconsin, who brought in some of her colleagues as, as well. And so it was developing as like a two region things, but then at the last minute, uh, UC Irvine folks uh, uh, found us and, and our uh, goals were aligned. And it's actually really a fun group. It's a, it's a large group. I think um, when, when I we, when we were listening to other uh, projects that were funded by the same program, they were much smaller <laughs> uh, groups. And and here I am presenting like eleven different you know colleagues who are on this team. But but we really it's really fun and it would really work well together. Yeah, I think it's awesome for you to share kind of that behind the scenes aspect of the research also, because I know a lot of the general public probably doesn't understand how research really happens or understand how all of these connections are made. And I know I certainly didn't before I started grad school, like I was had no idea about anything related to research. And so it is really fascinating to see how researchers, they often are able to see a need out in the public, see needs that affect them or issues that they personally care about, but also that affect those around them. And then they're able to find other people that have those same passions and then able to work together to do some really awesome things. So I know you guys are conducting this survey and I know you guys haven't collected all of the data yet, but do you have any preliminary findings that you guys would like to share or anything that you're seeing that's super interesting so far? 
So one of the things that, that we realized is that I think when 2021 started, everybody wanted to find out about the impact of the uh, of the pandemic. And, and uh, um, we, we feel... Um, we really feel the uh, survey fatigue among among the food industry and, and also um, agricultural uh, s- sector, and and so we we're really grateful for the producers and the businesses along the supply chain who actually responded to our our, our survey. And uh, I just I've only looked at the partial results from from the Minnesota Wisconsin uh, sample, but one of the things that that we're seeing is that so what, I, I think the main question is like we're asking them how their sales revenues change from quarters in in 2020 compared to like a typical year and one of the things that that is coming out from the Minnesota Wisconsin one was that production egg so the the upstream most upstream of, of our food supply chain was hit the hardest um, in terms of sales like during the first quarter of 2020 like that includes March when when people are starting to feel the impact but then as the year went on then further down in the supply chain so it would be the the wholesalers the retailers and then the food services the impact was a lot greater in magnitude and also seems to get greater the further down the supply chain that uh, it went. So I'm really curious to know whether that pattern really holds after we finish uh, completing the, the collecting the responses and whether we see this in our other study regions as well. So what are you expecting to be some of the outcomes of your research? So I think I think what we're hoping to find is, you know, what what did happen um, and the amount of detail that we can provide in what did happen in this situation will give us those data and those insights that we need to you know, stop the negative impacts from happening next time. But I think in, you know, in many cases, there were things that helped an effective response. So we've, we've talked about being flexible and being adaptable Strong relationships with suppliers um, was something that comes up often for businesses that did better during the pandemic. Things like agile production or being able to distribute um, in a different way than mainstream helped and just supply chain planning. So I think, uh, you know, I mentioned before that a lot of people were looking for information on where their food comes from uh, when the pandemic first started. And another thing that everyone now knows or has in their vocabulary is supply chain management, right? We, I will admit that I wasn't even an expert on supply chain management at the beginning of this. And now I feel like I have had to become an expert in order to explain a lot of these things. So um, it's, it's, I'm hopeful that that type of education is what we're able to provide at the end of this. And just any, anything that we can say about how this situation unfolded and what could be put in place so that it doesn't unfold in the same way the next time. Yep. And another big piece of, of what we're trying to get from our overall project is to see like clearly people adapted different behaviors in response to the pandemic, but there are things that we know it's going to stick with us as well. And, and I think, you know, the Zoom culture is, is one of the things that we talk about, like how do we, there, there's definitely a benefit about the Zoom 
you know, things that we adapted, but how, how is it going to look once we start getting in person again? And, and the same thing with the business practices. And so we, we are hoping that we have some ideas about what specific practices are going to stick uh, and kind of shape the, the the supply chain for the next, you know, five, 10 years. And, and I think it would help us um, help the industry really see what what that means for the demand that is facing their business along the supply chain. I think it's also interesting that you guys have mentioned a couple of times about people at the beginning of the pandemic being really interested in learning more about where their food comes comes from. So I think as a science communicator and as an agricultural communicator, that's kind of exciting. So have you guys had any opportunities to really share with people and educate them about their supply chain and about where their food comes from? So one of the things that we did at the very beginning was put together a graphic. We worked with a graphic designer to try to communicate in a simple, as simple as possible, what that food supply chain looks like in Florida and communicating the fact that there is this intermediate processing and distribution channel that you have to go through. And one of the other things that we really needed to communicate here in Florida, being the state that was showing the dumped milk on TV and showing the vegetables being disked up in the field, was the fact that there is this sort of you know fork at that final getting food to consumer stage where it's getting food to consume away from home and something like a restaurant or a, a school cafeteria or theme park cruise ship versus purchasing food to use at home. And and I think just showing that those were two different roads or two different paths that the food could go to and that the processing and distribution looked very different for you know supplying to one of those versus the other, I think was really helpful. And just you know, doing things like this where we can talk about our research in a little bit more of an informal way versus you know, writing things up for an academic journal has been really helpful. So I, a lot of us have a majority extension appointments on this project. And I think that that's going to be a very important component of the project is not just doing research for academic sake and, you know, obviously informing decision makers at our state and national levels, but educating the public is another big component of that. One of the things that, you know, in addition to understanding where, where the food comes from, I think a lot of people have turned your attention to uh, food security issues in, in our nation. And, and people really want to make sure that, you know, they're, they're contributing and, and, and recognizing that uh, folks really have to have good access to, to food and whatnot. But I also really want to impress, you know, when, we, when I'm, we're communicating about the food system is that it really serves two roles. It's true. It has to nourish our population, but it also has to support the livelihood of people who are actually in the supply chain. And, and so I, I really would like to, you know, bring up just, just awareness of people that food price, you know, sure, you know, lower the price, obviously it in increases the food access, but at the same time, the double-edged sword is that people need to be able to make, you know, livelihood from that, from those food prices. And so there has to be a balance that, that we all have to be thinking about. I think I'll, I'll add one more thing because it's another important component of the project that we're working on together is, is that, you know, this, this idea of educating the public. We're at this cooperative extension is a two way street, right? So at the same time, we're reaching out to individuals that are throughout the supply chain to ask, what are the issues that you're facing? What are the problems that need solving so that we can focus our project in on those projects instead of 
you know, Michaela, you mentioned multiple times of people not fully understanding the food supply chain or not fully understanding the supply chain management or not fully understanding how academic research works. And a lot of time, I think we get the bad rap that we sit in our ivory towers and type on our computers and work with data and then produce things that are not useful in the end. And I think that you know, the, the reason that I really enjoy being in an extension focused position is that I can listen and then I can respond to problems as opposed to just sitting here as an academic and talking about things that people may or may not even need in their lives. I couldn't agree with that more. I think it is exciting for me to like give for you guys to have this platform to talk about these things and for people to understand more about academia, more about research, but also um, be able to learn more things that are that they find applicable to them. And that, you know, the research that researchers at universities do is so important and it is for the people, you know, it's to help them understand issues too. And so I think that's something that's overlooked a lot. And so I could get on my own soapbox about that, but I think it is really exciting to hear you guys talk about that too. Can you talk a little bit about why this research is so important? In this case, it impacted everybody, right? So whether you were someone in the food supply chain that lost a job or lost some income, or maybe even we're doing great. Some of the businesses that we've talked to increased their business during the pandemic. On the other side of things, everybody needs to eat, right? So determining the best way to get that food from the field to your plate in a format that you would like to consume it and at a price that you would like to purchase it at and is able to support all of those positions along the food supply chain effectively, then that's that's really our goal. And I think that that impacts everybody as opposed to just being a, a minority of the population involved in a particular problem. Yes, and I, I can't agree more. And, and I think in a way, the uh, spotlight that the pandemic has offered to uh, grocery store workers and you know food processing plant workers is is in, in a way um, it's great that everybody's you know it's, it's humbling to recognize how our supply uh, food food is supplied to to everybody. It's not just like where it's coming from, but like how. And there are all these putting putting faces on the people who are involved in in giving us the food is is very um, important and and makes this project worthwhile. And I, and I hope that you can hear our enthusiasm uh, for the project because Hikaru mentioned at the beginning the I don't want to say haphazard, but the way that the team sort of formed, we didn't all know each other um, going into this proposal and going into this project. And most of us have actually never met in person. Um, we, we've met electronically and via Zoom for the proposal stage and um, for the beginnings of the research stage and hope to meet in person someday when um, You know, we are able to, but the team actually, we all want to educate the public. We want to help the the people involved in the food supply chain. What do you hope will be done with this data that you guys are collecting? I, I just hope that people use it. We're really hoping to communicate with decision makers. And we are not, you know, we're, we're academics. We, we're doing unbiased research that we are not going to say, this is what you should do during the next pandemic, or this is what needs to be done. But I go back to that we are providing information and insights to decision makers so that they can be informed when they are making those decisions. So the, the more people that we can share the information that we come up with that are in those circles, whether those are local decision-making circles, whether those are 
um, decision makers for an individual business or whether we're talking to people um, with within the USDA or within the federal government making national level decisions, that that's you know, my hope is that this information is informing the decision making processes. Yes, and I think it's, it actually has a um, like unprecedented opportunity right now with the, the passing of the Relief Act that there's you know large chunks of money that are distributed across the nation to help. The food sector is one of the places that the, the money is, is intended for. And, and I really do hope that our um, work actually is used to inform and in, in for effective distribution of those funds where it really um, needs to go in and help strengthen uh, the, the food system overall. How would you like to see this research used in the future? Decision makers are deciding what can or should we do in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future. So we don't end up in a situation where people are hungry, the grocery shelves are empty, but there's food in the fields. And I think that, you know, effective policy, it's going to require timely and commodity specific information. Um, So that's one of the things that we can provide through some of the surveys that we've discussed today, but just that information and any type of insight that we can provide on if and how those regional food supply chains can augment the traditional supply chain so that we move from a food system that is completely efficient to one that is efficient and resilient to the next disaster, um, then I think that's cleared all of our goals and we'll feel like we are a success at the end of this project. Moving on to, so what do you guys think that this will mean for the future of the agricultural industry? Yeah, so I think all of all of what we do on this project and anything that our program does on disaster impact analysis is aimed at regional and national strategies for disaster risk reduction, right? So if we are in a place where a hurricane or another pandemic or any type of disaster hits that affects the food supply chain, ideally we've informed policy and decision making again at the at the business level also at the local state and federal levels that design a more resilient food system so that we it, you know resilient means how quickly can you bounce back not that it's not going to affect you because of course we can't necessarily design a food system that isn't impacted by a hurricane at all but you know how quickly can we get back up and running the next time and you know maybe there were there were some businesses that closed and they're not, not planning to come back. They closed permanently. So the, the fewer businesses that we can lose in the next situation like this, the faster that we can get food onto shelves or food into the hands of consumers that need it, then again, we've, we've been a success with this project if we're more resilient than we were going into this particular pandemic the next time. Yeah, I, I, thanks for that, Chris Sutton. And I, I would, I would add that I do want our work to be able to create like an ag industry that's a little bit more uh, ready to be creative and more flexible in their thinking that they don't have to be, you know, be in a, a comfortable uh, spot, but they're just ready to spring into action and, and think outside the box uh, whenever the next, um, 
disaster strikes, God forbid, you know, but, but, but I, I do feel like this is an opportunity for us to realize that it's always fluid and it might not be a, a pandemic next, um, but whatever comes our way that they're really like, okay, we've, we've done this before. Um, let's, let's, you know, shift our focus and see what we can do. And, and, and uh, I, I think it really does affect the mindset of everybody so that we're more resilient. Yeah, I like that very much because, again, coming back to the fact that we want to inform both individuals and, um, you know, policymakers, it's it's about adopting strategies that counteract, you know, what we're facing the next time. And we, we keep saying, God forbid, or we, you know, we know another disaster is coming. We just don't know what it is or what it looks like or what it's going to come right after. Right. So we, we want to you know, strategize so that we can counteract any potential compounding impact that these things have on sector growth for the agriculture and food system. And and that comes back again to what Haru mentioned earlier, national food security. So we are in a place where we can quickly rebound no matter what comes at us the next time or how many disasters come at us the next time. Yeah, I really like that you guys both use the word resilience because I think now more than ever, we're all able to really recognize how resilient agriculture and the agriculture industry really is. And I think that's one of the greatest takeaways from COVID-19. What do, what would you guys say are some of the most important lessons learned from COVID-19 that can be carried into these future uh, potential disastrous situations that we're talking about? We'll come back again to the idea of being flexible and agile. So if if you were a business that was just, this is how we do things. We can't do it that way during the pandemic. So we just won't do it. That didn't go so well. And and I'm not at all discounting the fact that there are some components of the supply chain that could not shift on a short time scale. So this is not just suggesting that it was personal decisions not to change that um, led to a business closure or a, a significant decrease in sales revenues, but planning Planning for the fact that you might have to be flexible, even if you are traditionally not, would be um, one strategy that I think would help in the future. Yes, and I think as as a um, individual decision maker, whether it's you are a business manager or you know even even a consumer trying to to manage their their household uh, food situation and whatnot, I, I do think that. Um, it, it, it is, I mean, pandemic, you know, if, you, if you're trying to count the blessings of it, is it really helps you prioritize what's really most important and what are things that you can uh, get by. And then if you have like an image of the priorities um, related to your food needs or your, your food business, I think it does allow you to um, uh, more strategically respond to these pandemics. And, and I think it uh, leads to greater resiliency and overall as a system that it takes a shorter uh, amount of time for everybody to be cared for. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of sort of planning and preparation, right? At, at all of these scales, the individual, the household, the business, uh, and even government. So there's an education component there, right? And hopefully we can fill that void. So if you are an individual saying, I have no idea how I could have been prepared for this, or I don't know how you know my life could have been flexible to get around some of these problems, or my food system operation was not prepared for this, and I don't know how to make it more flexible, I would say reach out to your cooperative extension agent. And if they don't know the answer or they don't have resources for you, they will find somebody that does either within their own institution or 
you know, throughout the community of practice that we're all involved in related to disasters. So just, you know, anything that we can do to boost those resources. And if we don't have an answer to a question that comes in, that feeds back to our research. And it's the whole point that we're here in order to answer those types of questions. And I should just add that that is actually one of the uh, project out- outcomes that we're looking for as well is to develop not just resources in terms of knowledge base, but also training programs so that cooperative extension folks can be better prepared to help the industry as well. That concludes part two of this series on food systems during the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to extend a very big thank you to Dr. Hikaru Peterson and Dr. Krista Court for being on Science by the Slice. Be sure to subscribe to Science by the Slice and be on the lookout for our next series. I want to thank the folks who make Science by the Slice possible. Michaela Kanzer, Rachel Rabin, Ricky Telg, Sydney Honeycutt, Valentina Castano, Ashley McLeod-Morin, and Elena Poulin. I'm Philip Stokes. Thanks for listening.